Catherine Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman, and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today's book is from 1996. It's The Unconsoled by Kazuo Ishiguro. I promised one of our listeners that I'd do more to summarize each book at the start of the episode, um, but between Chekhov and this one, I'm not sure how well I'll be able to keep my word. The Unconsoled is large, long, dreamlike. Um, the main character is a famous pianist called Ryder, and he's in a town that's populated by figures from his life that he only half remembers, and they all need things from him that he can't quite provide. Um, I think in the course of our conversation it will be at least as clear to listeners as it is to readers of the book who all the people are, um, not quite knowing what's going on is a, a significant part of the experience of reading this book, so um, if that happens to you, that's uh, you're getting the real experience there. Uh, we also have a guest today. We're joined by J. Robert Lennon, author of many books, but I'll highlight the fact that he has both a novel and a short story collection coming out in April next month. Um, the novel is called Subdivision, and the short story collection is called Let Me Think. He also teaches creative writing at Cornell University. On to our conversation. So this is a book which takes the form of an ex like improbably extended dream, um, and and I just I just wondered, John, John, if you could talk about what kind of dream it is. I I would call it an anxiety dream. I think. Uh huh. You know, it, it, it's it, it's unlike any dream in that each scene goes on for a preposterously long time. So it feels like a, it feels like, well, I can almost see it as a, as an actual dream somebody would have that sense in a dream sometimes where so much time is coiled up in just the few seconds that you have the, the intensest part of the dream. Mm. Um, but this anxiety dream that is perfectly crafted to expose uh, writers insecurities and concerns without him actually consciously thinking about them. Yeah, I think that it's it's kind of balanced right between a dream and an experience of dementia, which I think is also, um, it, it's almost the question of how anxious any of these situations makes you as you're reading it. Because for a while, it kind of reminded me of like a stoner comedy, like Broad City or something like that, where nothing quite matters because even if anxiety is presented, you know that nothing is going to have any true negative consequences. But if you think I, of it as a world that he can't quite navigate because of dementia, the danger is real. And it's kind I of, never, right I on, yeah, say it, it, say it. Oh, I, I never thought of there being uh, an extrinsic cause to his cognitive difficulties, right? The idea that it is essentially a dimension narrative is very interesting to me. Um, yeah, I think that I, I kind of like, I thought that at certain points in the, the plot too, but it also very much chimed with experiences I've had with just having attention deficit disorder and, mm -hmm. and not being able to remember all the things that I'm supposed to be doing in a given day and then someone being angry at me. So I, I think it could be like any form of losing your grip on 
the things that you're expected to do? Yeah, I, I don't think that it easily fits into any of these molds to the point that you could feel that you had got it all figured out. Yeah. Um, but I think that the amount of the book seems to take seriously the questions of undoing all the self you had made through your life as you age. Um, it's interesting though, but with, with all the, with all the consequences removed, because I, I think this is a, ca- a characteristic of this book that you recognize pretty quickly is that crazy obligations and problems and emergencies occur, but they're actually meaningless and they're not going to result in any long-term consequences at all. And yet you are l- still left with that residue of anxiety and worry and obligation. Like, I'd be curious to know what the two of you, because even very late in the book, after I kind of got the trick, which, which is that nothing's going to matter, um, I've still found parts of the book making me extraordinarily anxious, almost unbearably so. And I wonder if there are, uh, I mean, I have a couple of places that I can mention, but I wonder if you guys also have bits of the book that made you very tense. For sure, yes. Yeah. yeah. Especially um, Gustav. Gustav made me incredibly tense. Everything to do with him upset me. Oh God! When they when I realized that they because I've read this book a bunch of times because I I teach it as part of my job. Um, when I realized that they were coming close to the part where he was going to do the you know the dance with the <laughs> with the suitcases, I was like, Oh God! I don't want to read it. I don't want to read it. <laughs> That's excruciating. That the I mean, it's it's such, such an amazing scene and such an amazing concept, but it is excru- excruciating to get all the way through that scene. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. And I think that it's excruciating in a way that a lot of the previous scenes um, with Gustav and actually with many of the people where Ryder has the status by virtue of being a famous pianist. Um, but the status is something that's somewhat given to him by the respect of these people. And they want recognition it's almost like they're they've paid taxes to give him this wealth and they Mm. want in return for that that the people who sort of got him to that place in society um they want recognition they want him to say like oh well you were my friend in front of their friends so they impress they're impressed or they want like oh well since you're a famous uh pianist you can tell people to give more respect to porters um, like the, the, his position of social influence is means that he's obliged to each and every person who has ever respected him basically. And they all are sort of calling in favors, um, which, and also that's the only meaning his respect has, like he never even gets to do his recital. He has no meaning for them at all, except as this thing that they've created to respect them and make them feel good about themselves. And they forget about him all the time and just leave him in a room somewhere. Um, yeah, I, so another of the scenes that was excruciating for me was when he, um, it's, um, Brodsky's leg, right? He, he like crashes into Mm. Brodsky on, and, um, and he thinks that he severed his leg. Like it's this bloody, awful accident. (laughs) And it turns out that Brodsky had a false leg, but that, it, the accident did not sever the leg, but nicked the stump of where his leg had already been severed. It's it's even more convoluted than that because what happens is he he's on a bicycle and he's 
and Ryder finds him tangled up in the in the wreckage of the bicycle. And there's a doctor on the scene who's part of a group of people who are camping for for some <laughs> mysterious reason. And the doctor says, "Oh well, we're going to have to amputate this leg. I think he's not going to make it unless we amputate the leg." And he sends Ryder. He says, "Do you have anything I can cut off the leg with in your car?" And Ryder says, well, I've borrowed this car, so I, I actually don't know. But sure enough, he looks in the trunk and there's a hacksaw. <laughs> and the doctor cuts the leg off with a hacksaw. And it's only, as you're saying, much later that you realize, no, he just, the idiot, well, he says, the, the fool, he, he sawed off my wooden leg. And he just <laughs> nicked the wound, nicked my, my old wound. But but he's like bleeding copiously and it's like dragging <laughs> himself across the stage at some point, right? With um, an ironing board as a crutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's gruesome <laughs> um, how much damage is possibly being made by all of writers not quite being able to fulfill his responsibilities. And yet yeah. you've been trained by the book all along to think, Yes, he's disappointing everyone all the time. Um, so I, a, also a couple of, doesn't matter. Well, this idea of things not mattering, I think, almost becomes a, a, it almost becomes a part of the anxiety for me along the line. Um, I was thinking about how two of the places that I was most anxious that made me the most anxious were among the least meaningful. One of them is he. Uh, you know, one of one of the sort of features of the book that I'm most the most beloved to me is the way Ryder gets from one location to another. It always bends space and time. There's always some magical method from getting from one part of town to another. Uh, what you know, often it'll be like going through a, a tiny door in the back <laughs> of a room, and yeah. it turns out to be connected to an entirely different building across town. Um, but there's one moment where He's with uh, Sophie and Boris, who for people who haven't read the book, these are people who start out being presented as strangers, but then it gradu he gradually remembers that this is his um, either wife or partner and her son and his stepson, I guess. Or son? Is he the father? He may be, yeah. It's, it's left pretty unclear, I think. Yeah. But anyway, he... Um, so they 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 come together and they're almost a family several times and then they get separated and they come together and then they're separated um usually by bursts of weird irrational anger on the part of one or another of the of the characters but in this one part where they're together they have to go you they have to leave in a car and go someplace very important it's one of you know riders many incredibly important uh appointments that he can't miss and the guy in the uh, the guy's giving them direction says Oh, just that red car that just left. Um, just follow that guy because he lives right near where you want to go. And so they get into the car and they start to follow it, but then they just pull off the road to eat lunch. <laughs> and they eat lunch for what in the real world would be like half an hour. And then right, and then I'm like, the car, the car, you're never going to get back. And then Ryder thinks, and then I, re I remembered that, you know, uh, we have to follow that red car. So we'd better get going so that we don't lose sight of it. And they get in the car and sure enough, like he, they roll down the road and there's the red car off in the distance and they do it again. Um, and it made me, there's something about having this, the only connection that you have to doing the thing you have to do is not in your control. 
it's arbitrary. I'm, uh, in fact, I'm colorblind too, so I can't tell red from, <laughs> from other <laughs> colors, and that was bothering me. Um, the entire, and it was completely meaningless, of course. He was going to arrive at the next spot because the novelist wants him to arrive, right? The plot needs him to get there, but the, the, um, the, uh, like in, intrinsic need, like the plot itself doesn't need him to get there. Ishiguro needs him to get there. And part of the shtick is that, of course, it, you know, it's, he's going to get there no matter what. Um, but still, I found that very upsetting. Yeah, I think that any way of describing the book dis- sounds like you're talking about something so confusing and alienating. It's hard to imagine why somebody would stick with it for this number of pages because it's very long <laughs> also. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I think that that's, that's kind of why, I mean, you were talking about it um, and I was curious about it because I kind of didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't get what I was hearing when you were describing it. So I was like, all right, let's throw it on the podcast, you know, 1995, <laughs> let's give it a shot. Um, and then I think it's, it may be one of my favorite books we've done so far. Oh, good. Um, I found it hypnotic Uh and also like really very profound and Uh not weird, not alienating and dreamlike. It was, I mean, it, it is alienating and dreamlike, but the, the effect that it actually had as I was invested in it, as I was like fully under its spell was sort of like, um, there's this, this one passage where uh, Brodsky, the um, conductor, he's this um, falling apart and aging drunk who used to be a great conductor, who's trying to pull himself together for a writer's performance, which um, doesn't quite happen. Um, and But he's just obsessed with the memory of his romance with, uh, it's Miss Collins, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And he has this speech that he goes on in quite some detail about how he just wants to have sex with Miss Collins one more time, <laughs> actually more than once, not too many times. He doesn't have to have this happen too many times. It could be like six times. And he, and then he kind of layers the way that they used to have sex when they were first together, when they were not connecting and soon to break up. Um, and they each wanted different things and they were each kind of pushing on each other to get what they each wanted and to not give too much of what they didn't want in bed. And then layered with his beliefs about his own body now and her body now and how much less attractive they probably are both now. (laughs) And so he like layers all of these things in this, I guess monologue is the right word. It, Sure. It had so much yearning and passion and it was so gross. (laughs) I mean, you guys know I like gross body stuff in general. Like I think a book, a book can always have a little bit more gross body stuff as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, it's, so it was like gross body stuff, sexy body stuff, relationship (laughs) stuff. Um, and the book is so otherwise chaste, you know, it, it, it's kind of a shocking scene when he says all this. And it actually, I don't want to, I don't want to ch- pivot too hard because I'm sure there's, there's more you want to say about this subject, but it, that scene 
does one of the things I love best that this book does, which is he repeats, everyone repeats themselves again and again in the dialogue. If you look at the long passages of dialogue, people are just rephrasing what they just said over and over. Yeah. And it's almost like mm-hmm. everyone is, is, pr- is praying on the rosary, right? They're just muttering to themselves, essentially. Um, and there's, you know, there's scenes where people are actually are muttering to themselves and Ryder overhears them. Uh, but he says, uh, he's talking about his penis and how it's just, it's just for the toilet now, I think is the phrase. Yes. It's just, it's a, oh, just, I, I want to, I want to have sex with her one more time, but then, but then after that, it's just for the toilet from then on. It's only for the toilet. Yes. Um, there's a, there's a bit where like a Boris, uh, um, Ryder g- gives Boris through this bizarre thing he buys, like a, a woman who's selling popcorn at the movies, but she's also selling this old handyman book. And he buys the book as a gift for Boris. And then Boris is obsessed with the book, a book that is going to train him to be a, a, like a working class person, right? So, someone who can lay tile. That's a phrase that keeps being um, repeated. But Boris keeps saying, it shows you everything. I love this book. It shows you everything. And it becomes this mantra where the characters are trying to convince themselves of something that's very important to them for mysterious reasons. So the scene with Brodsky and his, and his toilet penis was extremely (laughs) funny and disturbing. And I agree with you, Catherine, like it, considering that the book is otherwise very polite in tone, this kind of shocking monologue, I was really moved by it. Like it was was very crass and very honest. It, it was. And it, I don't think it would be possible in any other kind of book to say something that felt true that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was partly the dreamlikeness and, and the, the sense that, that everything is constantly decomposing. Everything is constantly mm-hmm. being taken away. And um, that the, the meaning of everything is disappearing constantly in this book. And only this feeling of urgency and loss and anxiety can can be held onto, and I think that that's that's kind of what it. I don't want to say this is what you mean, but it seems connected to people constantly repeating themselves, saying like, "I just need you to tell my friends that that you're my friend. Like, you just have to go to the yeah. party and say that I'm <laughs> the person who brought you to the party." And then he forgets to do it. Well, and he forgets to do it, and it's agonizing oh and you can oh, and then, feel no, it's the beautiful. intensity of the need but he also like th- they finally end up in the living room of the friend and he keeps <laughs> trying to speak and he can't make a sound that like that was, <laughs> that was seen, like it also is like totally excruciating but i really laughed out loud at that scene yeah, yeah he, the way the way and the crazy thing is it's all writer's fault that's that's what the <laughs> that's what the text implies but Taking a step back from it, she she could say the friend basically the setup is the friend Fiona is has fallen in with this group of very snotty ladies who consider themselves to be patrons of the arts and they're and overestimate their own importance. And it turns out she actually knows Ryder, the famous pianist, and they don't believe her. So he shows up at her apartment to meet them by accident, like he promises to do it, then forgets to do it, then accidentally stumbles correctly to the right place at the right time to do it. And then finally he's there, and as you're saying, he, he can't speak. But Fiona could speak. She could say, <laughs> this is Ryder. 
here, here's a newspaper with his picture in it, right? Like, <laughs> here he is. Here's my friend Ryder. This is my friend sitting right next to me. And she never does. The, the, the burden on him is so hilariously artificial. And all he has to do is open his <laughs> mouth and introduce himself. And it will break the spell. And he can't do it. <laughs> Yeah, I, um, I I read a certain amount of Englishness into that scene. Oh, God, yeah. There's a lot of Englishness, I think, going <laughs> well, on um, around the, the edges of some of these scenes on what is um, what can be said by whom in order to break the spell of um, status anxiety. Um, well, I have, a, I have a couple thoughts about the Englishness, but I, wa- I wondered if Sandy um, had some too, because I know she spent some time in London. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like, um, I'm not sure that I did see that, but I, it might just be because I'm assuming the Englishness and not seeing it. If you, if you see what I mean. I, I feel like Ishiguro is doing, I feel like a lot of his work is sort of a, a, a parody of a joke idea of Britishness. Right. I feel like I've never read his interviews with him about this particular thing, but I think he's the child of immigrants to England. And so yeah, I feel like when he was five, I read. Yeah. So I, I feel like he has, he's, he's a genuine Englishman, but also I think has this, uh, seems to have this outsider's sense of uh, an aestheticized type of Britishness that he likes to write about. The remains of the day is kind of the mm. obvious example, but one manifestation of it in this book is everything is processed all the craziness of this narrative is processed through his first person voice, which is forever smoothing it over, right? It's always explaining things to himself, to itself. Yeah. Um, there's a bit where he he has to get to the concert hall and he's with Hoffman, the, the guy who's organized the event. And this is near the end of the book and the big important concert is about to happen. And Hoffman is driving him the concert hall and then remembers he has to go on an errand so he says why don't you get out now you can see the concert hall right there it's three blocks <laughs> away at the end of that street if you get out now you'll you'll beat me there and so Ryder gets out and he walks the three blocks and there is like a 20 foot tall brick wall just <laughs> in the middle of the street not even at the end of the street it's, it just cuts the street in half and it extends as far as the eye can see and it's it makes no sense it's such an absurd deliberate obstacle because of course he can't get to the concert hall in time because the book doesn't do that right so what does ishiguro do he he has Ryder notice there's like a little tourist shop and it all (laughs) has postcards of the weird crazy wall you know (laughs) and it's become this like it's become this like town symbol of it's this symbol of small town eccentricity that tourists actually come to look at it. And of course that shop didn't exist until Ryder made it exist by seeing it. Right. And then Ryder's like, Oh, this is ridiculous. But of course, of course, this is what it means in this town. We, and he later gets angry at some random lady for, for the, for the faults of the town over this thing. Um, and the fact that, you know, Hoffman wouldn't think to say go down that street, but of course you can't get there because there's a big brick wall there. Um, the wall springs into existence specifically to impede Ryder, and then the the tourist shop springs into existence to explain the wall. Uh, and I find that desire to even out everything to to be an expression of this like parody Britishness that 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 he's that he's styling in this book. I completely agree. I I <laughs> totally 
agree. And I think that I, I saw it more in the, um, in the social scenes that all felt like a comedy of manners where every signal of status had been confused and mixed up and made random. And yet yeah. the, the anxiety about how to uh, project the correct status through what you say and what you don't say was the only thing that was preserved. Yeah. Um, that was, that was where I saw it more of it. I think that your um, example of the wall is exactly that. That's, that's, wonderful um <laughs> i envy that scene it's so it's so um i i just picture him cracking himself up writing this thinking this is such a preposterously over the top iteration on the thing i've been doing for 400 pages but i have to i just have to do it because he can't get to the concert hall yet um so what did you guys think about the parents the parents were another um an like recurring absence of characters that I, I found the sort of the denouement with the parents to be very affecting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like the parents to me at the end, the parents made it obvious that actually writer is Stefan and the parents are Mr. And Mrs. Hoffman. And this is all like some kind of dream recitation where he's, projecting his anxieties about his youth and his family and having left his hometown to become an artist and losing touch with the people in his hometown onto these characters, as well as being just a dream about his experience. If you see what I mean, it's like... Well, sure. for, for people who haven't read it, maybe just say who's... who's yeah, Stephen. yeah. So Stefan, Stefan is the... Mr. Hoffman is the, the manager of the hotel who is also in charge of, of running and producing the, the recital, which Ryder is supposed to perform at. Um, and Stefan is the son of Mr. Hoffman, uh, who is an amateur pianist who is going to perform as the opening act at the recital. And Mr. Hoffman is very apologetic about this because he and his wife, who are both, uh, the wife in particular is, an, is a great esthete and everyone is very worried about her opinion of uh, Stefan's performance and Stefan also comes to Ryder as the great pianist and asks him would you listen to me practicing and tell me the truth about whether I'm any good and at a certain point Ryder does listen to Stefan practicing and he's great he's fantastic and his parents feelings that he's actually just a useless dilettante are incorrect um, but then when when Stefan finally does perform the parents leave because they can't stand the idea of him being humiliated in front of <laughs> everybody. But also the, like, there's an edge to it where you suddenly realize, oh my God, the parents have been full of shit all this time. He was always great. Like, and the parents are just negging him the entire time and preventing him from realizing that he's, that he's a great pianist. And to me, this, this seems clearly like writer's own psychodrama about his parents <laughs> who then don't show up for his own recital. And, you know, yeah, all like that. For sure. But he's so concerned about about who's going to look after his parents um, that he thinks his parents are going to show up for the concert. And there are various people who are claiming falsely that they are the ones who will be responsible for his parents in the mm. town and for making sure the parents are cared for in the town. And he doesn't think anyone is going to be quite up to the job. And he um, eventually finds out just right, right near the end that his parents are not coming and are 
probably dead. They're probably uh, dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that they did come once long before though. And that, and he's trying to ask, did they like it? Um, and what did they think? And the person who remembers the parents visit can only remember his mother and not yeah. his father. And it just, I, I just, it's another of the scenes that I just felt like the degree that it affected me, it, like it couldn't have been in a book that was written differently. The Yeah. And the person yeah. who, the person who he asks is just a stranger he meets on a bus. Um, and it, it's a, an electrician in the final scene of the book uh, who's sitting on a bus and he asks, do you remember my parent? And then he's, she, he says, well, I don't know. There's a lot of people come through here. Could you describe them? And he describes the mother and it's a very generic description of a middle-aged woman, you know? And then he says, oh yeah, I think I do remember. I think I do remember. Um, even in the, it, even like diegetically, it could, he could be, lying right it just doesn't matter um that this idea that this this guy manages to call to mind the the from this generic description a memory of Ryder's mother but not his father i feel just like is it's really devastating because at that point the book the book could give it to him if it wanted right mm. if the if the electrician if it can have the electrician remember the mother it can have the electrician remember the father too but it and it can't the narrative can't let Ryder have that and i that's what i find the most affecting about that scene it, it's, i would say that a lot of those decisions that the book makes i found very similar to decisions my own actual dreams make where the mm -hmm. dream will want something really badly but then it decides that if you go that one step farther then it becomes unrealistic and i will no longer believe in the first thing i was given so it might give me like the, the character remembering my mother and telling me that she must have had a good time in this town. But when I ask about the father, either, either I decide it would be unrealistic to get everything I want or I decide or my fear, like the, you know, the dreams are driven by fear and desire and therefore the dream just takes the, the thing away from me and it becomes a nightmare again. Yeah, that's well put. I, and um, it is, it, it puts me back in the mind of what we were just talking about, how the Hoffmans, they don't want Stefan to be talented. They, they don't want a talented son is what it comes down mm -hmm. to. Um, and to the extent that they will deny the fact that they actually have one. It, so one of the things that we have talked about um, in the past few episodes and then we kind of connected to this book and decided to save to talk about on this episode okay. is um, people who feel that they are not in real life or in normal life in some way, but use um, youth or beauty as a way to get to where they need to be like a, as a sense of possibility or that they, um, that they could be valuable if they could just get to this other place. Um, like for instance, the fact that the, um, the captive teenagers in flowers in the attic are beautiful is something that's sort of emphasized over and over and over. Sure. Sometimes in a sense to mean if they could just get out of the attic, people would be glad to have them. Um, and one of the things that's really striking about this book is how much it is not 
it's not talking about people that could be valuable if their circumstances were different. It's not talking about beautiful people. It's not talking about people who have a future waiting for them in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taking very seriously the feelings of people who are either unmaking themselves in old age or um, are uh, whose parents are not looking for them to be talented, who are humiliated by the idea that they would be talented or um, give a performance and show themselves in some way. I feel like just about everybody in this book is so eager to begin to accept the sad fate that awaits them, that they <laughs> are going out of their way to make it happen. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, um, you know, it's just, it's just Hoffman, the whole book, all Hoffman wants to do is for Brodsky and Miss Collins to reconcile so that Brodsky will be happy enough to conduct the orchestra successfully. And just at the moment that it's actually going to happen, he goes across town to sabotage it, to make sure that the thing he most desires does not occur. He's much more comfortable accepting disaster than he is bearing the burden of success. Um, and uh, I, f- I find that extremely vexing and and sad. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, sorry, Sandy. Oh yeah, and that that's also repeated in the the relationship between Ryder and Sophie, um, his partner or, or wife, and him be, him attempting to be a father to Boris. Whenever it's actually about to happen, somebody has a meltdown and turns on turns on somebody and and walks off, or or they're separated again. So, and even at the end, when they're fi- like they're all on the tram together, and he could go over and speak to them, he doesn't. It's just the, this kind of, the, the failure is, is the structure of, of the book that must always happen. Every situation must re- resolve into failure. One of, the, um, one of the scenes, it was actually the same scene where they're following the red car. One of the kind of relationship dynamics between them that freaked me out the most um, was they're they get in the car and they're driving off and Sophie starts to say things to Ryder like, maybe you should calm down a little or (laughs) stop being this way. Or like, maybe you should pull over for a little while. You know, you're get you're getting out of hand and Ryder isn't doing anything. He's just (laughs) quietly driving the car. Um, But this idea that he might actually be, a cruel and abusive man, even though the narrative won't let us see that happening. Although it sometimes lets us see it happening in a very random and almost parodically fake way. Um, The tension of him not realizing the effect he's having on her, um, getting that through her dialogue, I found immensely creepy. Yeah. I, I saw those scenes too. Not, I didn't remember that exact one. Um, you know, on theme, not remembering stuff, but um, a lot of scenes of her just crying for no reason. And her father saying, all she does is cry now. Can you check on her? And she just sits in public and cries. And, and it's like somehow he's responsible, but also not. Yeah. Mm. Like that reminds me of another thing I want to talk about. And that's 
the the crazy arrangement she has with Gustav. Um, and I think we've established this for people who haven't read it, but Gustav is not only the the porter at the hotel, but he is Sophie's father, and that is Ryder's father-in-law, we we presume, even though Ryder doesn't realize this at first or remember it. But they have this strange arrangement forged in childhood where they don't speak to each other, Sophie and Gustav. They only will speak to each other through an intermediary, often the child um, or someone else who might be around. And it just came from, I can't remember the exact circumstances, maybe one of you does, where the, the they had some argument when Sophie was a child and Sophie gave him the silent treatment. So he gave her the silent treatment back and then they just never spoke again. I mean, Englishness, I'm sorry. It just, <laughs> it keeps coming back. Um, I, again, I, I think that the book is full of things that if you were to describe to someone, it's this extremely long book that just takes place in a dream in which everything is, um, parodically designed to fail and only sadness is possible you wouldn't think please let me read that book but at the same time it seemed incredibly profound and moving and beautiful i i uh, laughed out loud reading it for the whatever seventh time or lol, the, as the current parlance yeah. would have it um but yeah you're right it's immensely sad um, this this touches on one of the things I, I sub- mentioned that I had wanted to talk to you guys about, which is the way uh, how much of this story takes place in the minds of children. And there's a there's a move. This is sort of backing up to a different note, but there's a bit early, fairly early in the book. I think it's you know just fifty or sixty pages in, where he's in in a car. Some he's driving in a car with somebody, and this person gets out of the car and goes into a house to talk to somebody. And Ryder's consciousness just follows them. So here's a passage. The door, and he's sitting in a car on the street while looking up at the door of a house. The door was opened by an elderly, silver-haired woman. She looked slender and frail, but there was a certain gracefulness in her movement as she smiled and showed Stefan in. The door closed behind him, but by leaning right back in my seat, I found I could still see the two of them clearly illuminated in the narrow pane to the side of the front door. Stefan was wiping his feet on the doormat, saying, I'm sorry to come like this at such short notice. So already, he Ryder can't hear this. He can see them through the closed car window. And then they penetrate further into the house, and then he knows what they're thinking. Um, anyway, there's a similar moment uh, where... Um, hold on. Boris is having this... Uh, is just sitting and talking to himself. This is about halfway through the book. Um, I went leaning against the wall, looking out at the view, listening to the sounds of Boris whispering furiously to himself. Um, And he, it just dawns on him. Oh, I know what Boris is doing. He's playing that game. He plays in his mind, this fantasy he has of how he and his grandfather, Gustav are being attacked by a band of thugs and the two of them together fight all the thugs off and describes this long battle scene that's taking place inside the child's head. And Ryder is narrating it like he's a third-person narrator. Um, and there's a lot of these childhood fantasies that that form, that take the, take the shape, or they form a shape in the characters' heads that, as adults, they, they're going to apply to everything else in their lives. Um, 
you know, Ryder thinks about his own sort of childhood fantasies and how they form them. There's a whole plot line about um, Boris having this fantasy about a very powerful football player named Number Nine <laughs> that's based on a toy he has, and the and the little man has broken off the base, and he they need to go back to the old apartment that they left to retrieve the box that contains the broken number nine so they can glue them back together. And of, and of course the new tenants understand how important number nine is. So they, they definitely saved the, the broken toy <laughs> when they moved in. I, I just, the importance of these childhood fantasies is greatly, is just outsized in this, in this book. And I feel like they, um, they end up, they end up casting this long shadow over all the characters' lives. Yeah, and the childhood loyalties—the that—that's often what um, the thing that is making writer feel guilty is loyalties that that go way back, even if he isn't entirely clear on the past or what his connection oh, right. to people is. Yeah, he meets he randomly meets some school friends, right, who have fallen on hard times and he feels guilty for having done better than them and gets yeah. into a skein of obligations yeah. with them. Yeah. And one of them actually tells him a long story about going back to their hometown and meeting up with all their old school friends and how the school friends just talk shit about Ryder all the time. And that's what they ever do is make fun of him. <laughs> oh, I love this book. It's uh, so great, actually. It really is a, such a great book. There's just one little detail in this book that uh, if I have to pick a favorite detail in the whole book, this is it. And I just wanted, you could cut it if it's too long, but I No, I no, to I want it. to know the favorite detail. It's this bit. One one sort of low grade uh, simmering subplot is um, Ryder. It takes Ryder a really long time to actually play the piano, even though that's supposed to be the the thing that he does. Um, he, when he finally, to make a long story short, when he finally plays the piano, it's like in some remote shack where he has inadvertently been serenading the funeral of a dog. But <laughs> aside from that, he gets to the concert hall and he realizes he wants to practice and um, one of the practice rooms is occupied and the other piano is also occupied. And um, so he, Mr. Hoffman says, oh, here, there's a, um, there's a, a, I can't remember what he calls it. Maybe it's just a, a, a practice room. Um, and it's like, he goes through a door and he passes a row of sinks. He's obviously like in a locker room or a bathroom. And then he finds these stalls. They're like toilet stalls with, but they only have the bottom half of a door. And he goes in and the, he barely fits in there with a piano. And then he realizes he has no privacy. And when he turns around, he suddenly sees, oh, there's like a couple of nails on either side of the, of the open half of the door. Um, and there's a cloth hanging there. And he realizes, oh, of course, this cloth is so you can hang it across the space for privacy. And the whole thing, it's the most dreamlike detail in the book for me. It, it's, it's, so, it's so specific and seemingly random, but actually about feeling humiliated, feeling exposed, feeling cramped. Um, 
And then he never even plays the piano because he realizes there is someone sitting silently in the stall next to him, presumably on the toilet. <laughs> and he becomes enraged that he would be subjected to such treatment. And then he storms out. Um, but this, this it's for me, it's that door. He, when he first goes into the stall, he doesn't notice that it's only the bottom half of the door. It's only when he sits at the piano that he realizes that there's no top half of the door that he's just passed through. And then he finds that someone has hung a cloth there to solve the problem. Um, I, I just, that has stuck in my mind, like few details in any novel, I have to say. Yeah. Okay. And I've got one thing that I really have to. Yeah. Have to Please. Because this is, <laughs> it's kind of like extra textual, but it's something that I find really fascinating about this book was the, the hostile reception it got which I think is especially interesting since this book is all about artistic judgments and like a town where <laughs> art is more important than anything else. And the huge, the huge fear that they have of things being either too conventional or too extreme. And there's this kind of historical character in, in the town of, I think it's Mr. Sattler. So anyway, like really, the the reception the book got after after Ishiguro had at that time written some very realist books that were like accepted rapturously and everybody loved them and and he was the like the golden boy of British literature and then he wrote this which was like a book that was about three times longer than any of his previous books and obviously like much more experimental much more of an extreme Sattler kind of book. And less of like a book that was in the kind of Mr. Kristoff mode. If you're if you're reading the unconsoled, then <laughs> then Mr. Kristoff is the the disgraced person who formerly ran the artistic life of the town, who they now realize is is just by the book and doesn't really know what he's talking about and is actually a bit of a philistine. So so anyway, like in terms of this book, like so so then Ishiguro writes this like really wildly experimental and interesting and original book. And these are like James Wood said that this book invented its own category of badness. Um, <laughs> Michiko Kakatani's take on it was this. Certainly the philosophical points Mr. Ishiguro wants to make at the unconsoled are important, but they are lost along the way in his dogged shaggy dog narrative, a narrative that for all the author's intelligence and craft sorely tries the reader's patience. So, so it's sort of like, it's almost as if like the, the book set up this practical joke intending to be received in this way <laughs> by these people who are replicating the, the reaction of the audience at the recital at the end of the book when Mr. Brodsky directs this, like conducts this orchestral performance, which is a Sattler kind of performance, which is really perverse <laughs> and weird and, and too exciting. And the audience <laughs> is infuriated <laughs> and rejects it. <laughs> I think this yeah. is, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think this is the book that for me, I was like, oh, I, I feel like this is a work of genius. Yeah, I really, like, I really, the previous, before I read this book, I thought, you know, Shiguro, the Nobel Prize, like, I like his books. I love some of them, but really the Nobel Prize. But after reading this book, I'm like, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Give him <laughs> like, another. Yeah. King Nobel, totally. This to me is far and away his greatest work it's a it's a i think it's a masterpiece and i 
Um, the the very things those critics disliked, I I adore. I can't remember which critic wrote that there was a review of this book. I should have looked this up beforehand, but uh, there was a review of this book that referred to his earlier work as hyper realist and um, said that this book uh, was so fake and that it was not psychologically acute, and it made this reviewer. Um, realize that none of his work was real, that it's all fake. And my response to that at the time was like, yeah, like <laughs> those books were super fake. Like, <laughs> the, like they were, they were completely mannered. Uh, they're all in the first person. If, if I remember right, they're all unreliable first person narrators. They're all about cognitive states basically. Um, and you know, the, the earlier books, there was a lot less distance between we could sort of see reality through the, the, the twisted vision of the narrator in all those books. But in this book, he just kind of throws all that out the window. And I feel like found, found the sort of a secret vein of ore where his stylistic and psychological mojo lives. Um, and it felt more true than anything he had written up to that point. I've liked his work a lot since even the books that people crap on, like the buried giant, which I, which I'm very fond of. Um, but, uh, this book I feel like is the thing that it's, it's where all, everything about his identity as an artist came into focus. Um, and it's this wild shambling, some <laughs> thrilling, boring, like wonderful melange of peculiarity. I just, I just couldn't, couldn't be happier returning to it. unconsoled episode thank you for listening thank you to j robert lennon for joining us to adam bear for our music also thank you to everyone at lit hub for hosting us if you'd like to write to us our twitter is at litcenturypod and our email is litcenturypodcast at gmail.com thank you very much and goodbye till next week <laughs>